Welcome to the conference room's best of 2022. This is our opportunity to look back at some of my favorite guests and some of the very best conversations we've had during the year. And we start with Gordon Lawson. Gordon is the managing director of Net Abstraction, and he came in to talk all about business growth and sales leadership. Everyone is a leader. Now, sometimes that's a positional leader, or sometimes you're an individual contributor, but you have to have those attributes of servant leadership, really listening to your people, not just people that report to you that you report to, but listening to everyone and taking those viewpoints into consideration as you're making a decision. Action for our company, and I think for a lot of successful companies out there, means that we default to action. We're going to make things happen. Not every decision is the right decision, but I would rather take the information that we have and make a decisive movement. And I think normally that turns out pretty well. But the way that you measure that are those results, right? You have to be results-oriented organization. And I think when you see whether that's increasing revenue, increasing customer retention, releasing a product that has a huge community around it, all of those things are tangible results and that you have to drive your organization to making sure you're making the movements that get to those positive benefits. That was Gordon Lawson, CEO of NetAbstraction. CEO and business startup expert Tammy Johnson came into the conference room and gave a masterclass on how to spot and eliminate avoidable mistakes. When you're building a business, every single business, it doesn't matter what product it is, what service it is, what industry, anything like that, you need to have the eight basic pieces. You have to have your mindset right. You have to have your habits, marketing, advisory team, financials, systems, cash flow, and profit. You need to have all eight of those. If you're missing any of them or more of them, your chances of success go way down. The more pieces and the better the pieces that you have, the more likely you are to succeed. And here's one of the beautiful things about being in business, especially now, because we are so connected through the internet and virtual assistants with all sorts of different skills and that are basically at your keyboard to access. You don't have to be good at everything. And in fact, you can't be good at everything. No one, no matter how brilliant you are, can do all of it. So you need to have good people on your team. You need to have good advisors. So I say what advisory team, because most people, when they're going into business, especially to begin with, and I was one of them and I went into my business much better prepared than most people, they're getting their advice from their broke ass friends and family that have never accomplished anything in the arena they're playing in. So they can't help you. And you can't even see your blind spots and where you're missing and where you're making mistakes and missing opportunities and stuff. So one of the biggest things that I've found for myself personally and for working with my clients for over two decades is the people that you surround yourself with when you first start your business. Bob Cruz, CEO of security automation startup Revelstoke, came into the conference room to discuss how he launched the company from an idea to a successful cybersecurity startup. Number one, surround yourself with smart people. I know that's a, you know, kind of a Captain Obvious statement, but be brutally honest with yourself and understand where your strengths and weaknesses are. And again, that sounds pretty you know pedantic, but it's true. You need to understand like a lot of folks you know have so much confidence and passion about what they're doing. They don't listen to criticism or things they might've thought about from other people. They're not open to feedback or like I said, criticism. And you have to be, you have to be brutally honest with yourself and understand when it's time to cut bait on an idea and move forward. 
forward. The other thing I would say is, you know, network as much as possible. I'm trying to think about this in terms of I'm actually somewhat rare as a go-to-market CEO at this stage of company. Typically, I'd be more technical. Every company I've worked for is always a technical co-founder. But, you know, you need to get out there and network. And, uh, you know, not the stereotype, but a lot of technical folks are a little more shy than somebody like me. But you've got to get out there and ask questions and network and build your family around you, you know, your work family. And then thirdly, I'd say always be raising money, you know, part of that networking. And it's just amazing how much time diligence and raising money can take. So, you know, pitch everybody you can. You'll learn something every single time. You'll make a wider network and make sure the people that you actually end up with are active investors, not just passive investors. I like investors like the ones I have, Jay League, Charles Beeler, and Matt Biggie. They're operational. They've done this before. So they're not just professional investors, you know, handing over a check. They've actually got real experience or their network has real experience that I can leverage. And so that's critical as picking the right investors. Lynn Catalano came into the conference room to discuss workplace toxicity, narcissistic bosses, and what you can do as a leader to identify and correct those situations. So I've broken down 10 signs of a toxic coworker, colleague, or boss. And I want to point those out and then answer your question about the culture, because I believe that when you have any of these in an organization, that again, that spreads. And what happens is when someone in an organization sees that bad behavior is allowed without any kind of punishment, that they continue to do it as well. Because if it's okay for the leader, then it's okay for me and it's okay for you. And it's okay because who cares, right? If the leader doesn't care, why should we? So that's kind of the very basic fundamental breakdown in an organization. But I believe that, you know, we've all seen people with a few of these characteristics, but Perhaps we've seen them with all 10. You know, I was lucky enough to just win the lottery with the toxic behavior. I got all 10 a couple times. 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10. So I'll go through them quickly as there's 10, but please feel free to stop on any one and we can expand on it. Okay. So the first one is they don't take responsibility for any of their poor decisions, right? These are the people who are the first in front of TV cameras when everything's going great, but they're most likely throwing someone else under the bus when something goes wrong. Two, they avoid conflict at all costs. They don't like to have uncomfortable conversations. They have other people to fire people and they don't wanna have anything to do with any kind of conflict. Three, They micromanage everyone, as in they ask you to do something, then send you an email to ask you if you've done it. Then they send a message to the person that they asked you to contact and so on and so forth, rinse and repeat. It must be so exhausting to keep all of those tasks in their head. I can't even imagine. Four, they don't communicate well and sometimes at all. They have different communication strategies and they do not like to be challenged. Five, they expect everyone to be on call 24 hours a day, no matter your pay level or level of responsibility. Six, they have no boundaries. They email and text at all hours, evenings, weekends, and they get angry when there's no response. Seven, they don't plan 
they just react. I once described this as a nightmarish version of the hokey pokey because they keep pivoting to someone or something else and they blame whoever was tangentially involved or otherwise for a poor decision and they move on and there's no overall strategic plan for the organization. That was one of the really big tip-offs for me when I realized that we were just reacting to whatever society, the economy, whatever was happening. We had no plan. And, you know, I like to plan. So that was a bit of a problem. Number eight, they're focused on short-term optics instead of correcting whatever the root cause of the problem is. They would rather, you know, put a fresh coat of paint on it and smile again for the cameras than actually get in there and do the work. Nine, they completely ignore turnovers. They don't want to hear about why people are leaving because that may reflect poorly on them. So they just don't want to talk about it. And 10, they provide lots of criticism, but they never provide any level of coaching or educating you on what they actually want. They just get angry when you don't give it to them. So those are 10 tips on how to identify that toxic person that you work with. The conference room had many sales experts during the course of 2022, and I particularly enjoyed my conversation with Chandler Walker, Chief Growth Officer of Taylor Green Media, who talked about scaling sales success without using aggressive sales tactics. Problem that we see and we kind of have to work through is culture. Because when someone comes in to make a change, people in the organization don't necessarily want that change. So the first thing you have to do is work on the culture inside the organization. In my opinion, the first and most important thing is our first pillar, which is detaching from the need to sell. So you have to take a lot of these commission-based sales reps. You have to take a lot of people who need to make money and move them into a position and place to where they're not attached to the outcome. Because when they're attached to the outcome, all of a sudden commission breath comes about. It's like they need the sell. They start to be aggressive to get it. They start to really want it. And the more you want it, the more someone's going to push away and not want you to get it. Because being human is a game of cat and mouse. It's if you want it, I don't. If I want it, you do. And so we have to teach them detached from the idea that you need to sell and attached to the idea that you need to serve and connect the dots and people will want it more than ever. Setting up your business without protecting your IP is like building a house on land you're not sure you own. One day, someone might take it away from you. IP attorney Miriam Tatsurian came into the conference room to explain what every business owner needs to do now to protect their business. So number one thing that almost without exception, every single business owner struggles with is having the best contracts to protect themselves, their businesses when dealing with other people or independent contractors. So what I've noticed that a lot of them do is they get, you know, they'll Google, for example, an NDA template online. And then they'll grab something online and they'll use it regardless whether it's a good one or not. And a lot of the times, an average consumer doesn't know whether that contract is good or not, because as long as there is this legalese, you know, jargon in it, like terminology where it sounds like it's written maybe by an attorney because there's like tough words in there or some Latin phrases that they might not understand, they think it protects them. Right. So this is the number one problem that I see a lot of business owners struggling with. They don't want to invest in proper contracts to protect themselves and then end up using something they found online or even on another person's website. They copy paste specific sections and make a contract for themselves. So a lot of the times this comes back to bite them because these policies are very specific. They're not meant to protect everybody. They're meant to protect a specific business owner that got that in the first place. 
So that's number one. Number two, as you said, they don't know what they don't know. And a lot of the times business owners aren't even aware of the sheer amount of intellectual property that they have in their businesses. They're just used to the big kind of, you know, if you say image, they understand an image is copyright. A video is copyright, for example. That's what they understand. Or if they're writing blog posts, they understand that's a copyright. Or if they have a logo or a brand name, that's trademark. That's the extent they know. And then they think that's all the intellectual property they have. I've had a few clients like retain me for audit. They wanted to know exactly what kind of intellectual property they had in their business. And they were surprised by the end of that call, like the number of intellectual property they had and that they needed to protect in order to protect their businesses. It was nowhere near what they thought it was. It's usually 10 times as much because people aren't aware of all the intellectual property they have. And the second biggest mistake is not protecting their intellectual property. I'm happy I'm here because talking about this, like I'm not selling you anything. So it's great because when I talk about this to, you know, consumers and clients, some of them might might think I'm trying to be self-serving and sell them my services. But that's not the case at all. Because what happens is a lot of people think they need to get to a certain point in their businesses. They need to make certain amount of money in their businesses before they should start thinking about protecting their intellectual property or before they should register a trademark for that brand name that they have or have been using or maybe even intend to use. The reality is that's absolutely not true. How much money you make has nothing to do with your intellectual property. In fact, the trademark real estate is fast becoming non-existent. Like, what does this mean? You know, we have names, brand names out there that we want to register. But when you want to register a trademark, you go on a database and you have to conduct a thorough search to make sure that there is no other business with a name like that or a similar name that could be confusing. And we are fast running out of these options. Like all the good names are pretty much taken. It's taking a lot of brainstorming, research, search, and, you know, kind of trial and error to come up with a name that right now you could protect through trademarks because a lot of them are taken. There's a lot of names being registered on a daily basis. And when the time comes for you to register something, chances are there will already be something incredibly similar to it out there. So this is the one thing that a lot of business owners don't take into consideration when they wait. They think, okay, like I have time, maybe next year or the year after, maybe when I hit that seven figure goal or when I hire my, you know, two virtual assistants, like we'll do this. But the one thing I want everybody to understand is with trademarks, if you know your branding, if you're sure about your branding, that is, if you're not sure, okay, trademark's not for you. But if you know your branding, the sooner you do it, the better off you are. If you want to check the health of any organism, you need to give it an x-ray. But how do you x-ray your business? Well, earlier this year, Phil Hughes, CEO of PHH Digital, came into the conference room to talk about how analytics can be that x-ray and by understanding them can really help you scale your business. You're doing well in Google search, but you've not created any new content. So what's happening is your content is slowly going down the rankings, which then has a knock-on effect to your actual website traffic and people visiting your website. So it could be things like that. And also a good one is people don't realize with Facebook is if your post gets a lot of good engagement, the next post you do, they will actually bump you up a little bit more. They'll reward you for that. So what could be happening is you could be doing really well on Facebook and then you do a bad post and another bad post. What Facebook deem a bad post in terms of 
engagement. They then do it on the flip side. So you'll be not shown to as many people in the newsfeed. And then if that doesn't get good engagement, you won't be shown again in the newsfeed. So it could be like, why were these posts doing so well and getting people to our website? And then it's not, and it's because your engagement is being impacted. And then the platforms are then, well, that's not engaging people. We're not going to show it to as many people. So it's hard to really correlate one specific thing. And this is why elementary analytics, what I was trying to do with the product is to give you a massive overview of sort of your digital footprint and which things will be going well and which things may be going down. And then you have to react. Because again, like I say, when it's too late, if you've just done a load of Facebook posts and never looked at what the engagement is, to then try and get back up the news feed with everyone else posting and whatever changes they've put in, it could be a real massive effort. While if you were reacted a little bit earlier, you could have recounted that and carried on with the trajectory it was already on. Cybersecurity Chief Revenue Officer Aaron Ansari came into the conference room to talk all things sales in an episode we titled Everything You Wanted to Know About Sales but we're too afraid to ask. What are our customers looking for, right? What are our buyers and what are our customers looking for? And I believe the answer is that, you know, the second use case that you put there, somebody that's experienced their journey and or somebody that has that technology prowess or achievement to be able to relate, connect, and ultimately help solve the problems of our customers. It's easy for me to connect with buyers when I can say, oh, you know, when I was responding to audits or, you know, state of New York sent a bunch of auditors out and, you know, they were all up in our applications and our documentation, which didn't exist because nobody documents anything until like the day before, you know, when I was doing that, you know, and it's easy to see that connection be like, oh, okay, you get it, right? You can empathize with what I'm going through. You know, you being, you know, the customer to me, you know that I don't just have this problem. I've got 30 other problems that I need to help work on and solve. And I think that sort of empathy or that connection with the buyer's plight and with the customer's problems is something that they're looking for. So when I'm hiring or I'm looking for, you know, the next person to come and work on my team, it's not, you know, somebody that's been in traditional sales their whole life or their whole career. While that's valuable and while that's certainly something that can work at certain organizations for our teams and our customers, what they're looking for is somebody that can empathize and relate to their journey. So we look for that experience as part of it. So in addition to looking for, you know, connectability, personal ability to speak to somebody and being able to build a rapport with somebody, you want to understand their background, right? You want to have a good understanding of where they've come from, what they've done, what they've achieved and accomplished. And I don't mean, you know, looking at just sales numbers and looking at just achievement quarter over quarter, because depending on the salary range, you're going to get A players or, you know, A minus players, top tier candidates to be evaluated. Do those people understand the buyer's journey? Do they follow a sales process and do they understand the technology, right? And more importantly, do they understand the value of the technology? So, you know, I can understand the cell phone, right? I know that it uses a CDMA banded signal to connect to a tower. And then that puts a call through to a satellite or a network system of towers and my phone call goes through, right? But do I understand the value of what that phone call can do? Talking to grandma, talking to my children, making a business deal, all those sorts of things. This phone brings me so much more value than the $900 or whatever that I paid for it, right? And if I'm able to convey that value in something, that makes it so much more easy and relatable. And I will buy from you a bowl that we will see and that we almost require of the candidates that we work with. Now, the second piece of that, right, is going through and ensuring that 
the ability of those people and the, the claims, I guess I'll say, made by the people with whom we're working are true and can be backed up. So at Rangeforce, one of the things that we have the ability to do is give a free license and have somebody prove what they say with using our software. And so one of the things that I do is I mandate before somebody gets to me. So after the HR interview with Amanda, she's fantastic at finding great candidates and screening them. I ask that they go into our platform and use our free community edition. And when they get to me, I ask them to take me through and walk me through and see what they've done in their community edition, right? And that helps me understand then, one, if they've done their homework, right? Two, if they get the product. And three, if they've used it enough to see if it's something that they want to do. If you're working for you know, Palo Alto, I can't ship you a $50,000 Palo Alto box for you to install, configure, and work with, right? But I can get an understanding of if you know what the value of the product is and how to best promote that product or solution set to the customer through questions and answers and all that sort of screening process. So we use our own technology and we eat our own dog food with our screening and our interviewing process. Others might not be able to, but we certainly get a lot out of seeing how much or how little you interact with our solution set. VP of Global Sales of Skyline ATS and veteran cybersecurity sales leader Mark Struttner came into the conference room to share his insights about establishing, leading, and managing an international cybersecurity sales team. There are advantages to both, and you learn in both environments. It's interesting, the large companies want you to act like a small startup and more entrepreneurial. And the small startups and the entrepreneurs often want you to act like a big company. And so it's good to have a little bit of both. You can also see what works and what doesn't work, where the mistakes are made and you know, where you should do certain things and not do certain things. When you've been in both, because you have the advantage of seeing how things work out, you get exposed to just different modalities and different things that work, be it in marketing, be it finance, be it in development, be it in pre-sales, sales. You get exposed to different ways of doing things in the startup, which is, you know, zero to 20 million or where you're going in and you're doing an expansion at a half billion, billion dollar company. If you want to learn how to play golf, who better to teach you than Tiger Woods? If you want to learn how to play tennis, who better to teach you than Roger Federer? So if you want to learn about marketing, who better to learn from than Coca-Cola? Paige Arnoff-Fenn, a former marketing executive at Coca-Cola, came into the conference room to share her playbook on brand building market research, and online marketing. So the why is, why does anybody care? Why is your product or service unique, special, or different? What is it about you? Why do you stand out from other products or services that are similar in the market? So what real estate do you own in your customer's mind that nobody else owns? How do you package and position and talk about what your offer is so that you stand out, that you're memorable, and that you have the right words and pictures to tell a compelling story? So market research is how you kind of find those breadcrumbs that get people to go from awareness to you know, kind of through the funnel of when they first hear about you to when they actually pull the trigger and convert and become one of your customers. What are all those breadcrumbs that you need to do to keep them engaged and interested and talking to you and so that they actually convert to become real customers? And research is absolutely critical in that process. Like I said, I started my career at Procter & Gamble. P&G is probably the most data-driven company in the world. 
They don't care what you think or I think. All they want to know is what does your customer think? And that was drilled into me from day one in my brand management career. So that's my personal bias. I really believe in market research. And I think you do have to ask your customers and you have to listen to what they're telling you. And you have to really do your homework on your competitive analysis and know where you're strong, where you're weak, where the biggest opportunities are, where the biggest threats are. And how do you get the most compelling story that's going to make you stand out and make you get picked? So that's the why. The mistakes we talked about a little bit earlier. The mistakes are people either ask questions in a way that is not objective. They ask the wrong audience. They don't listen to the feedback. People are telling them, I'm not going to pay that much, or I don't like this packaging, or there are a lot of other competitors, or I like the commodity because it's cheaper in this category. You're not offering anything special. You think you're a premium product, but you're not. And if you're not listening, if you're not reading the data, that is a huge red flag. So you have to ask the right audience the right questions in the right way, and then listen to the feedback that they're giving. One of the biggest challenges of starting and scaling a company is raising seed funding. We were lucky enough to have the founder and general partner of Rain Capital, Chenzi Wang, come into the conference room to explain from a VC's perspective what they look for in companies with whom they want to invest. Every investor has got his or her own framework that they use to evaluate a potential investment. So typically you've got a series of gates, right? And you have to pass through all the gates to make to the final stage of investment decision. And for me, the first level gate is what problem space are you tackling for a new company? Right. And a lot of other investors may have a different first gate. Uh, some investors, I know the team is the first gate, but I always look at the problem first. Is a problem space compelling? Does it solve a real problem? Does it solve a problem today versus five years from now? Not to say we won't invest in something that solves a problem five years from now, but the go-to-market motion is very different. So I look at the problem first. If I believe in the problem, then I dig into how good the team is. Do they have the unique perspective and technical approach to solve, to tackle this problem? And then we dig into product visions and technology differentiation and then market size. Right. So finally, this could be solving a really interesting problem, but only you know, a handful of companies would need it, then it won't be very compelling as a venture investment. So problem space, team, technology, and market size is at the high level how I look at an investment decision. PR strategist and consultant Kristen Spires came into the conference room to share her insight into the world of public relations. So PR is really a way that can really grow your business, right? So when I got my first job in PR, I was head of PR for a small company. We launched a brand, so it was at zero. No one had heard about it, right? And then one of our main strategies was PR. So we went from year one, zero media stories, of course. And then year three, we had 3,000 media stories in one year. So you can imagine the difference that makes for your brand going from nothing to doing that much media on something. So it's literally a way of making you a household brand by getting everyone to hear about you through the media. That's kind of the power that PR can have for you. Perimeter 81 
is one of the cybersecurity industry's celebrated success stories of 2022. And the chief marketing officer, Gilly Netzer, came into the conference room to share her story and some of her insight. The major thing I see as a difference for a marketeer working in a big corporate is that usually, unless they're very, very senior, like a CMO or something like that, then usually they have just one angle of the entire thing, right? Either they're doing the demand generation and even just a portion of it, like, you know, doing just PPC or just SEO or doing copywriting and influencer marketing, etc., media buy and so on. They can do field marketing, they can do channel marketing, they can do product marketing and so on and so forth. I guess the thing is that when you migrate and go to work for a startup, all of a sudden you have to do everything. You don't get services from the big corporate marketing. You just have to deal with all of it. And of course, if when the startup is a bit bigger and the company is growing, then again, you start to have specialities, but you get to taste more, you get to do more, you get to influence more. And basically from a business perspective, the big difference is that when you work for the likes of the Symantec and other big brands, the brand is already out there. People know the company. It's like in some perspective for some of the products, it's more of a cash cow. And then maybe you want to like upsell and cross sell. So there is a lot of focus on that. While in the startup, you really need to scale the business. You need to build it from scratch. And this is a big difference because it's a different kind of marketing and methodologies. You know, you have to create a lot of awareness. You have to do a lot of education. And that's different from working in a big company. In episode 80, the conference room got a little bit meta because... We spoke to Callie Bell, the founder and CEO of All Things Podcasting, and we discussed how to turn your passion into a profitable podcast. The biggest thing going into it is you have to decide when you're launching and when you're creating the content, like what is the purpose of this podcast? Who is my audience? Why do I want them to listen? Why should they want to listen? What action do I want them to take? And you kind of have to like figure out before you're launching if you're going to do this to try to make money. And if so, how, just like you were saying, that's like the main core difference, especially when it comes to people who are launching their podcast, because I feel like a lot of people go into it, just like people launching a YouTube channel, they go into it and they're like, I'm going to be rich. I'm like, that's not really how it works. Like you have to have something to drive these people to in order to make money. You're not typically, unless you have some really good sponsor hookups, when you're first starting your podcast, you're not going to be rich. You're not going to make a lot of money simply from having a podcast that exists out in the world. So it's different strategies, different setups, different methods to kind of set the podcast up in a way that makes sense for you. And also your expectations, like business podcasts get way more downloads than a podcast about an aquarium. So you can't expect the downloads to be the same as, you know, Gary B or Amy Porterfield or any of those people. <laughs> Chief Revenue Officer of Cybersecurity Vendor Perimeter 81, Ohad Mandelbaum, came into the conference room to discuss his secrets and strategies for growing startups into multi-million dollar corporations. Now, the one thing that I can add is the ability to have the zealotness. The one thing I can add for sure is that in any stage you may be, you have to be able to be almost like a zealot in your ability to actually improve. Always improve different processes, improve the KPIs, improve the close one rate, improve the number of leads if you're doing an inbound marketing, improve the sequencing, improve the personalization, improve your ability to actually think holistically about the customer 
customer journey over time, right? With the revenue bow tie, and I can elaborate on that if you wish, but improve each one of those segments and those linear improvements eventually are being compounded to create this type of growth. One of the things that startups need to do, and it's a known secret, but it's hard to actually perform, is the ability to actually create, let's call it triple digit growth. It can be 500% or 900%. The basis of it all has three pillars, right? Has the need to have a perfect product market fit, right? The ability to have a team that is able to have the variety of abilities to execute in many different dimensions. But it also needs to have that underlying factor of always trying to improve 1% better every day, 10% better every month. And that improvement requires you to be able to manage as a CRO or as a CEO or any other management position that there is in the company to manage and mitigate change over time. And that change is true for the individual or Johnny, the salesperson or Yossi, the salesperson. And it's true for the director of the department that needs to be able to create the process. And it's obviously true for any C-level. Your ability to manage that scale over time and have that experience and common sense to know when to prioritize, when to focus your maximum impact on the information, on the variables that will create change versus when to just allow mistakes to happen in order to learn the lessons. This is key in go-to-markets and it's key for startups that are in a hyper-growth stage. Obviously, as the company grows public, as the company grows to become more mature than other values, other responsibilities, other guardrails, other proficiencies become more and more important. Karen Mendoza, Senior Executive of Dbox Technologies, came into the conference room to talk about product development and product launches, and in particular, how working as a senior product executive at Nintendo developed her ability to innovate consumer experiences. So recently, right, up until that time, Mario games can only be played on Nintendo gaming consoles and gaming devices, you know, home console or the portable Game Boy, DS, 3DS. It's almost think of it as an exclusivity, right? Mario can only be exclusively played on Nintendo devices. Well, here comes Apple with their, you know, game changing, world changing iOS systems and the iPhone, the iPad and all of that. And they're now bringing these snack, what we used to like to call it Nintendo snacks of entertainment. It was never fully immersive, Candy Crush, Solitaire, whatever you're playing on your mobile devices. We never thought them to be competitor to a more immersive and engaging game like a full-on puzzle solver with Mario titles or any other Nintendo game. What happened in 2016, 2015, 2016 was during an Apple keynote where back then, was it Tim Cook or, yeah, it was Tim Cook, Apple CEO, and our Mr. Shigeru Miyamoto, the great legendary, he's still alive, so living legend of a game designer of Nintendo, walked on stage together to say now, you know, Super Mario Run is now available on iOS devices. And that was so game-changing because now all of the installed base of iOS users and Apple users, if they've never heard or played a Mario game in their life, now they have access to it. Now they can download it from the Apple, you know, iOS store 
and make that a point of discovery. So for Nintendo, it was for a very long time in the 130 year history. Can you believe that they've been around as a company for 130 years? This in my mind is the difference between Asian businesses or Eastern way of go-to-market strategies versus Western ways and American ways of going to do business. They think in decades and centuries, right? Versus, you know, quarterly hits of quick wins. So the Mario decision on why not just put Roger Federer in a Mario tennis or Lewis Hamilton in a racing game. Well, they can do that. And Nintendo has done that with third party game developers. But when you bring a Mario or a Luigi or any one of these franchise lovable characters that only Nintendo can do and can design for, well, now that brings the level of quality to attention to detail. And again, honoring that particular fandom and that character has to be owned and managed by the brilliant minds that only Nintendo technology teams can provide. Chans Weber. CEO of Agile and Company, came into the conference room to talk about how he turned his life around and turned a $15,000 loan from his parents into a digital marketing agency that's closing in on eight figures. He also shared with us some of his insights about digital marketing. So painting this picture again, okay? If we have a client that is running Google ads and we're doing search engine optimization and we're doing Facebook ads and we're doing email marketing, all of these things have a cost associated with them, right? So if we are fully controlling, or I should say, if we're fully able to see the sales attribution back to the marketing effort, then we can start to quantify things. So we can say we spent, and I'm just throwing numbers out there. We spent $5,000 on Facebook ads and it generated $50,000 in sales. We spent $10,000 on Google ads and it only generated $25,000 worth of sales. Well, what would you do, right? We probably need to flip those budgets or we at least need to start some type of process to start feeding more funds into the higher ROI investment. So as an agile marketing agency, essentially, that is exactly what we do. We are constantly on the fly and moving funds accordingly really based off of two main indicators for our clients. The first and foremost is obviously the data, which summarizes the example that I just gave. Follow the money, right? Follow the revenue. So that's step one. Piece two of that is needs. So a client might come to you and say, hey, we're launching a new product, right? We need to go build out a new website page, new landing pages, new ads, new ad copy. Well, that's a need. We need to use their money to go do that. But really, that's it. It's those two things. What is working and what do we need to do? And some months, there might not be anything that's quote unquote need to be done and we're just following the data and moving the money accordingly. So one thing that makes my team different just in general and how we function as an agency is a lot of agencies, and this is what we used to do, to be fair, we've been on this model for six years now. So prior to that, what we would do is we just just go build a 12-month plan for a business. We'd say, you know, we're going to put $4,000 a month into Facebook ads, $8,000 a month into Google ads, this much into SEO, we would just go run that play. Well, the problem is, is if pieces of that play didn't work, we had this contract and we were just like stuck in doing this and providing these services to see it through. It just, it doesn't make any sense sense for anybody, mostly the client. So now we meet every single 30 days. And I still do this to this day, even with the size that my agency's grown to. I meet with my account managers and my COO every single 30 days for our first and the 15th of the month clients. And we go through the data of every single one of them. I feel like that keeps me fresh. It keeps me in touch with what we're doing. So I don't become just such a CEO. I want to be a marketer, right? Not just a CEO. So we continue to do that. And we essentially recalibrate or reallocate our clients' funds every single month based off of those two things, needs 
needs and data. Dan Ellis, Managing Director of Townsend Search, came into the conference room and we discussed all things headhunting. So it creates a lot of alignment to make sure that we have the right person in place from the get-go. And if we have to keep searching and digging and it makes our job harder, then so be it. That's why we get paid a solid success fee. So I think that the contingent shops, they ill-advise the candidates because they don't play the long game. They're not focused on the relationship. We are focused on the relationship. We do play the long game. We have candidates reaching out to us, just letting us know they're going to be passively looking in the market. But they they won't go on job sites. They won't talk to the contingent shops. So they're organic proprietary leads that we can introduce to our clients. And that's one of the values that a retained shop can bring as well. It's just those long-term relationships with non-job hoppers or people that do truly value our guidance and expertise because I didn't have anybody giving me advice back in my public accounting days. There's nobody you can talk to in your organization. You can't go talk to your boss about making a potential move. So I view my position as being able to help the accounting and finance professionals understand the market, understand their options, educate them on compensation trends that we're seeing. 2022 has been a remarkable year for the conference room. In this year, we actually got into the top 0.5% of all podcasts globally and were listed in the top 10% of most shared podcasts on Spotify. 2023 is a year about which we are immensely excited and there are some incredible plans afoot that are really going to propel this podcast into the future. None of this could have been possible without you our listener. We're incredibly grateful for your loyalty, your support, your suggestions, and your questions. Reaching out to us on social media and asking questions has inspired me to find some great guests and to share that advice and those actionable tips with you. I'm incredibly grateful for your loyalty and for your support. I'm also incredibly grateful to the amazing support team we have here, led by my colleague Roseanne. Without her, believe me, none of this would be possible. So on behalf of Roseanne, the entire team that work tirelessly behind the scenes and all of the guests that have come onto the conference room throughout 2022, those that made this show and all the others, I wish you a fantastic 2023 and all the very best. I wish you peace. I wish you love. I wish you success.